When I was a child and I pictured the great patriarch Abraham, Avraham, in my mind's eye, I saw a kindly elderly man with a long beard roaming around the desert in sandals and a toga. Naturally, this Abraham had little money. After all, a man as kind and righteous and spiritual as Abraham had to be poor. Money would have only corrupted him. Yet, once I began actually reading the Torah as an adult, I learned to my surprise that Avraham was exceedingly wealthy. What does it say about my moral value system that I presumed that a holy man needed to be poor? Jesus once said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. These words were spoken approximately 2,000 years ago. Yet, Avraham lived at least 2,000 years before that. The association between poverty and goodness, which, according to Nietzsche, Christianity established, had not yet taken root during Abraham's day. I wanted to figure out more about this curious figure, Avraham, whom I presumed to know for much of my life, only to have so many of my assumptions refreshingly shattered as an adult. I therefore decided to interview Jordan Ledvina. Jordan was my old Torah study partner back in Highland Park, New Jersey. Although he grew up secular and an atheist, he rediscovered Judaism while a university student, and now is what we would call an Orthodox Jew. His day job is the chief information officer of the startup Dialyze Direct, which provides home hemodialysis services. But Jordan is also a passionate student of the Torah and always manages to find time to study, even though he also happens to have five kids. In addition, Jordan is a descendant of the 16th century Torah sage known as the Maharal of Prague. The Maharal is one of Judaism's most legendary rabbis, who is particularly famous for his Gur Arya al Hatorah, a super commentary on Rashi's Torah commentary. In addition, the Maharal is often accredited for having created the Golem of Prague. When Jordan and I used to study Torah together, I always was impressed how he managed to get himself to the synagogue late on weeknights after having worked all day and put his kids to bed. Though he sometimes did look a bit wiped out, he insisted on staying and studying, reminding me that nothing, nothing is more important than learning Torah. What I particularly relish in Jordan's approach to Torah learning is how matter-of-fact he is willing to discuss the texts. Jordan is someone who will certainly tell it like it is. He is also well-versed in the Western literary canon, and his ability to weave in Western thinkers into his analyses always pleasantly surprised me. So, Jordan, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate the introduction, too. Try and live up to some of that praise. <laughs> Thank you for coming. It's great. Um, so, I just want to ask you a couple of quick questions about your approach to learning Torah before we get into the actual uh, Parsha of Vayera. Um, I would say that for some rabbis, um, they might, I've noticed some rabbis are very wary of even talking about secular philosophers. Is it problematic or difficult to maybe have the Torah and Nietzsche maybe next to each other on the table or to, to kind of... Yeah, well, I think the way you phrase the question is kind of interesting and maybe gets at the point most... Um most pointedly in that do I have Nietzsche and a Chumash open on the same table at the same time? And the answer would be no, uh, I don't mm -hmm. do that. But does that stop me from, you know, kind of uh, listening to a lecture series on Nietzsche or Hegel or any of these, you know, kind of Western philosophies, German, German philosophers, and then applying that, you know, kind of thinking through those lenses sometimes to ask questions and perceive things that I'll do for sure. Um, 
but you know that just comes down to a very kind of specific design in how one approaches uh, Torah learning. And for me, I kind of always make that distinction between that secular learning, which can have you know interesting ideas, and you can kind of reflect that. But I'm not trying to commingle the two. I'm not trying to you know it in in a way that would put them on equal footing. In my own personal life, I just view the kind of Torah philosophy as one which is how I view, you know, is essentially truth. Everything else, you know, is is very interesting. And maybe that makes me, you know, seem somewhat insular, but and I'm happy to kind of engage with it and dialogue with it. And I think that people who can should, um, you know, insofar as, you know, the sages tell us, you know, Dalama Heshev, like you should know and be able to kind of respond to it and think about it. And that means, you know, really kind of engaging with it for the people for whom it's relevant. You know, lots of people, I don't think it's a very good idea. Um, you know, and I've spoken about this with people who are much wiser than I, you know, much bigger uh, Torah scholars than myself asking if it's okay and you know, discussing, you know, the benefits and the costs. And, you know, it's it's worthwhile for people who have a background, you know, because there's a whole world out there to be engaged with. And I think that not being not having people who are, able to properly be exponents for a Torah perspective, you know, and be able to speak in the language of, you know, Western thinking is something which we're lacking. It's not to say that there's nobody there, but there's a certain, you know, it's not a total lacuna, but there is a dearth and, you know, there are lots of people who are very capable um, and certainly more capable than myself even, but it's, you know, it's always worthwhile to just have, you know, people who are able to kind of bounce between both worlds, think about the ideas, but at the same time, not necessarily be so beholden to them that it, you know, creates fissures in one's, you know, worldview. You are listening to The Shrift, interview four with Jordan Levinen. Fayera. says in verse in chapter 13 of Genesis verse 12 verse uh, 2 Abraham was very rich so the Torah says it it's not even in, hinted at it's just directly stated that he's he's very wealthy um, why do you think the Torah is there a reason why the Torah emphasizes his wealth yeah and what's how does this strike you in general well, it's a good question. So I think that there's actually, I think the story gets even more complicated than that because I think he went from, you know, it wasn't just like he was wealthy. I think he went from one stage of wealth to an even greater stage of wealth. And the the verse you're referring to specifically is actually kind of referring to that moment in time where he went from, you know, maybe, you know, uh, let's put a separator here, Lahavdil, as we say in Hebrew, but let's, uh, you know, it's almost like Elon Musk going from his early win with Zip2 to then, you know, becoming like billionaire, multi-billionaire in, you know, PayPal and and Tesla, right? Because Avraham, definitely they were people of means back in the times that w- when they were living in in Haran and Orkastim. And and then, you know, he, he, he already had some measure of wealth then. And then when he arrives in the land of Canaan, and there's a famine in the land. He goes down to Egypt and then, you know, through his interactions with Paro, uh, he becomes even more wealthy. You know, there was, obviously he made a very favorable impression on Paro. If we just take the simplicity of the text, you know, if you listen to, if you read the sages then they tell you that really even Paro even gave over his, you know, his daughter to, you know, to, to Avram's house. So we understand that there was a very favorable impression that he made. So Avram was wealthy in... Haran, where he grew up, or where he, I guess he didn't grow up in Haran, but he moved to Haran as a young man, and I think he grew up in, in Or, or Chaldea, right? Or, yeah, yeah, Or Kassia. I mean, what today would be like southern Iraq, you know, that's where, that's really where he's from, and then, yeah, he moved with, yeah, we, the verse, the verses tell us that they moved to Haran, um, I think he was still with Terah, his father at that point, 
I mean, you know, they, they, I mean, they were, I would say that they were, they had businesses, obviously, you know, Avram was a herdsman. Herdsman was a very, was a very um, lucrative profession in the ancient Middle East, you know, and they're, they're, they're it, it seems to suggest that their family business was profitable. They were, I wouldn't say they were like the upper echelons of society necessarily, but if we're being honest with ourselves, God would probably make it that he was wealthy because for all intents and purposes, you know, most, most major figures that, or, you know, if God wants to promote Abraham's vision for the world, people generally tend to listen to wealthy people more than they listen to poor people. Uh, I don't know why that's the way it is. Um, but you know, it's, I think it's true even in modernity, we look at just who we elevate in society and who we listen to, you know, those people generally tend to, the, the elites are usually the ones who are paid the most attention to. And so kind of money talks, talks, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
you know, we recognize that God has a very specific hand that guides, you know, most of what's going on in this world. And so you are, you know, it, there's, there's an obligation there. So it doesn't, it doesn't view it as a negative or a positive. I think it's more like an invitation. Abraham is wealthy, but he's certainly not materialistic, and he's very generous with his with his wealth. You might say, yeah, to the contrary, right? I mean, we see even after the episode of the War of the Four and Five Kings, you know, Avram's kind of presented with this strange bargain uh, with with the king of Sodom, in which the king of Sodom basically says to him, "Listen, you can take all the all the spoils of war; just give me the people." And Avram rejects it out of hand he says i don't want i don't want anything to do with like spoils i don't want your you know i don't want i don't want that and which is interesting because then based on what i had just said like why shouldn't avram take it you know it's just an invitation to do greater degree of of tzedakah you know you could just flip it and turn it around but i think that avram was had a different thought process in mind when he rejected the you know kind of gift and we should call it a gift with heavy quotations because you know, Avram basically won the war. The king of Sodom was not really in a strong bargaining position to begin with. Um, I've, I've thought a lot about what exactly was his was his perspective that would he would come in with such chutzpah, you know, to like try and propose a deal when Avram had basically just won the day. But I think that Avram was trying to separate himself from a character like the king of Sodom because if he had used the wealth in this in the bargain that that he was striking there'd always be this kind of claim that would be out there. It's like, oh, well, yeah, okay, you did all this wonderful charity work, but it came through or it had some, you know, the the king of Sodom could kind of always make a claim that it was a byproduct of my generosity. And I think totally. Avram was trying to avoid that and trying to, you know, show like anything I get is really from God. I don't need your property in order to, to accomplish the things I want. Well, I think like we said before, Abraham had the wealth that he didn't need to accept charity. So if you have the wealth, you should use it. And if you don't, then you should accept the charity, I would say. Yeah, that's an interesting, yeah, maybe. Um, you know, in that, in that particular situation with, with, with the king of Sodom, it's hard to know what would have been the right thing. The sages were equally critical of Avram for the way he handled the bargain from a different perspective. They said, you know, there's a Gemara in Nadarim, which is a tractate in the, in the Talmud, which actually says that this, this very episode, the one I'm referring to, is the reason why Avram, you know, that his, his descendants would have to spend all this time in, in, in Egypt as slaves. And it says because he didn't fight for the people on the other side. There was two sides to that bargain. You take the property and I'll take the people. And the sages are like, Aaron, you, you missed a huge opportunity here. You could have argued back, no, I want the people. You take your, you take the spoils. And you could have saved those people because those people ended up being under the sovereignty of the king of Sodom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so there's something, there was something lacking in the way that he, you know, he dealt with the king of Sodom, which the sages identify as, you know, being part of the reason why. You know the Jews had to go through the through the experience of the exile in Egypt. So there is there is definitely a very subtle needle to thread in this, in this conversation between charity and what your obligation is, and it's just you know endlessly fascinating to me. And that's what this is what's great about studying Torah as someone who grew up without much of a Torah education like us, because you you keep breaking through more and more stereotypes of or kind of superficial images you had. Like I thought he was poor, found he's rich. And now you're even now, um, I kind of just presumed that this situation with the, at, at the end of the war of the five, five Kings, I believe yeah, that Abraham was blameless and did perfect decision. And you're saying, well, actually, no, it's much more complicated than that. So that's what I love about Torah is just 
there's no, the story is the values that it imparts are way more complicated and sophisticated than we are kind of trained to oversimplify. Avraham did not travel alone. Often by his side was his nephew, Lot. Yet, Lot hardly carries the same gravitas today as does Avraham. The same was also true in Avraham's time. In chapter 13, verses 8 to 11, the Torah provides a magnificent telling image of Lot in which truly a picture tells a thousand words. Here, Abraham and Lot must decide between them who will take which part of the land. Avraham instructs Lot to choose his half, and Avraham will gladly take the other. The Torah explains that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the region of Sodom and Gomorrah and how fertile the soil was and how much it resembled the Garden of Eden. Lot naturally chooses this half. It is the easier, pleasanter, cushier side. Avraham, by contrast, is content with the side which is more rugged, rocky, challenging. Jordan, however, had an even deeper understanding of Lot's faithful decision in this moment. This particular passage is one which I have, I should say, I have a very deep affection for. So we can we can get into it, but I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. So I'll present not my interpretation, but what the sages of the of the Talmud say, because I think that mm-hmm. their perception is so profound. And when I first learned this piece, I was, you know, dubious and skeptical, and then I learned it with a um with my rosh Hashiva, rabbi beryl gershenfeld and it opened my eyes in a way which I, i'll never forget the experience now what's interesting about the way that they kind of show that he's a bad guy is looking at this verse and they takes this verse apart every single phrase of it and they just it attaches it to various passages throughout you know the whole torah the isa lot et enov like it, he lifted up his eyes and it's like, oh, that's just like we see with Shimshon or Samson, you know, in, in the book of in the book of Judges, where you know he says, Oh, do what's right in my eyes, you know. And obviously we understand that Samson was the beginning of you know being coming corrupted. And at the time when I looked at this Gemara, and then it goes through each, you know, each part of this verse and it shows how, oh, all of this is just for for bad. And I said, wait a second, one one sec. You know, you say. I can find you verses throughout all of Genesis, which have, you know, in the very beginning of this week's Parsha, you know, it says Avram lifted up his eyes. So who mm-hmm. are you like, why, is, why are the sages like going out of their way to be like, no, 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 he was a bad guy. It's like, you couldn't, you could, what's so like, what are they seeing? And this is really something which, which Rabbi Gershenfeld kind of took, uh, took me to task for. He said, like, you're learning like a, uh, well, I'm not going to say the name of the Savior because I'm about to bash it a little bit, but he said, you know, you're learning like this individual and you need to understand that that kind of learning is, is very superficial. He said, look at this whole verse. This whole verse is, is unnecessary. If you think about it, Avram and Lot are dividing up the land. Just tell us, and Lot decided to take, you know, this land, but it doesn't do that. Instead, the verse goes out of its way. He lifted up his eyes. Why are you even telling me he lifted up his eyes? And he saw the entire Kikar Yarden, right? This whole plain of the of the jordan valley mm-hmm. he's you know it's 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 watery it's full of like you can see the the sages are trying to understand like how did we go from Lot being relative you know he followed avram he was you know he was in mitzrayim with avram he, he was he was a student of avram's he journeyed with him all this way and yet somehow we wind up at this very gross and debased episode at the end of vayera where he's you know committing incest with his daughters mm. how did that person become that person mm. and to tr- track the whole trajectory of it the sages are looking for the 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 flaw like in a greek tragedy you know 
Like mm. where, where, where was the, where was the flaw in the character? Where does it first emerge? And the sages point to this verse well before any of the bad stuff happens all the way back in Parsha's Lechlecha, the previous Parsha, that's when you get to see Lot and you start to see his psychology and you get to see, you know, the fact that he is a person who's starting to chase after material wealth. And this comes immediately on the heels of their episode in Egypt, right? If you think about it, it, it the, the Torah goes out of its way not only to mention Avram's wealth, but it also mentions Lot's wealth. Lot became very wealthy in Egypt as well. It does mention that, yes. Verse 13, yeah. chapter 13, verse 5. Yeah, yeah. it does go out of its way. And, yeah. and not only that, like later on, it's going to say, you know, Avram start, you know, God starts speaking to Avram again. And he goes out of, and the verse goes out of its way to say, this is after Lot already parted ways with him. And Rashi on the spot over there says, he's like, I couldn't talk with you so long as, as long as that Russia, that evil person was in your midst. It's like, when, when did Lot become an evil guy? And I think the answer is this whole process of accumulating wealth in Egypt started to transform Lot's character. You know, wealth, as we talked about, it's an opportunity. You can either be like Avram and do amazing things with it and do charity, or you can let it transform you. And it there's nothing arrogant. There's nothing negative about Lot before Egypt. Nothing. Not really. No. Yeah. I mean, you see, God talk. God talks with Avram prior to Lot's experience in Egypt, but then for whatever reason, God ceases talking to Avram with Lot around him. So what happens? I want to argue, and this isn't my opinion, this is the Malbum, and this is, you know, this is, I think, Rashi too, is that if you look at the way it talks about Lot's relationship with Avram, it always says in the beginning that he was S Avram, right? Like in Hebrew, the word with could be S or it could be Im. And in the beginning, it's talking about Lot as S Avraham, where he was subservient. He was with him, but he was always subservient. And he was always, you know, he was learning from his, his uncle. He was learning from his Rebbe. He was learning from his teacher. But then after Mitzrayim, he's no longer S Avraham. He's Im Avraham. He's with him because he, he views himself on the same level. You know, you see the haughtiness starting to take over and you see the argument starting to emerge. You know, you see the trappings of wealth. He's not handling them well. And Avram has to part ways with Lot in a way that preserves their relationship because he says, I can't, I can't maintain, you know, we can't be together anymore, but I still want to be close to you. So let's find a way to work amicably together, but apart. And then that's when you start to see Lot. I think that's really when like his, his transformation as a person becomes very clear. And that's what the sages are honing in on. It's like, look at this verse. This verse is screaming at you that Lot is, is a, is, has changed. He's become something which is, you know, going to lead to a much more, like at this point, he hasn't done any real sins. Okay. He, you know, there was the whole, the reason for why Avram and him had to part ways, but he hasn't done anything major yet. Right. We're not like, you don't, you know, but you don't right. get there overnight, you know, and that, and that, that seed, the germ of his eventual. I know, see. Yeah. It'd be like in a movie, like a, a film where you have, I mean, there's a lot of films where a character starts out good and turns bad. Exactly. I mean, and then it's like one, they start out good, innocent, and then at the end of the movie, they're like... Corrupted. Yeah. Corrupted. And then there's always a scene where maybe they have a certain look in their eye or a certain, and you can just tell as the viewer, okay, like this is the tipping point, so to speak. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, um, I mean, I, I don't, I can think of like maybe I'm thinking of like the Godfather with Al Pacino, but, um, it's yeah, the best I think example. that's a great, I, yeah, no, I think okay. that's a really good example. You see, yeah. Cause he has that moment. I, you know, I would say, I would pick, if I was to say like, what's his low moment in the Godfather, I would say it's that when he's sitting in the chair contemplating how to like, take out the the corrupt corrupt police officer and the and the and the and the the drug dealer guy like he's sitting in the chair and you see him staring off in a distance contemplating and coming up with the plan and you can kind of see him being seduced almost in that moment mm. and i would say it again it's you see it in the eyes like you said it's it's him in that moment michael corleone is taking on like 
the mantle of becoming the godfather. He said, it's not me, Kay, it's not me. But then when he's sitting in that seat, it's him. It's definitely him. And even though he thinks it's just a one and done thing, he doesn't realize that he's just getting pulled into a world which he you know, thought that he had distanced himself from. I think that's a great analogy. Hmm. Yeah, actually it is not. I think more about it. And I think it's also something it's so it resonates with us because it's something I think we all experience in real life where we've all had moments um, where we've changed and it maybe we change in a way that wasn't really obvious to anybody looking at us or observing us, but we knew. Essentially, Rabbi Ger- Gershomfeld, was it? Yeah. Gershin or Gershom? I don't. I want to make sure I Gershom. say his name right. Gershom. Oh, with an N. Okay, Gershomfeld. Um, he said, you know, this raising up of his eyes is like this moment of almost like biting the apple kind of, of just biting the forbidden fruit of where he's making this. Nice correction because it's not an apple. Yeah, very good. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he's making this decision to kind of go to the quote unquote dark side. Is that, is that what? Well, I would say it's, it's again, it's like, it's, you know, you can always, is that what's so significant about it? Yeah, I think so. It's well, you can always reverse course, but it's this early warning sign, right? Like just with like, it compares it to Samson. Early warning sign, right? Yeah. It's like, look, if you want to find out, if you want to find the germ, the nucleus of, you know, of this ultimate kind of tragedy, then you're going to try and find the earliest symptom of it. And this is kind of that early symptom. doesn't have to necessarily progress all the way to cancer. If you catch it early enough and you refine yourself, mm. et cetera, you can always pull back. Yeah. But, you know, human nature being what it is, usually we're not so, uh, not as capable as we, as we'd like to think we are in that department, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, yeah, so much to say about this. Um, it's fascinating. Anyway, um, well, uh, okay. So essentially, this moment of the eyes is what Rabbi Gershenfeld saw as so telling. Is that what you're? Well, I'll say the the sages of the of the of the Talmud found it, and yeah. it was only in the hindsight of you know it, it, a, a person like Jordan Ledvina would dismiss it out of hand given like well you saw right. enough i can find verses all over the place what is to say but oh, I you know, it, takes yeah. a, it takes a learned scholar like rabbi gershenfeld to then explain to the jordans of the world go a little deeper there's something here you need to like spend more time on this and, and indeed i think there's a very powerful message you know laden in this in this verse I argued that Lot was a nice guy in the derogatory sense of that term. I reached this conclusion by noting that Lot is not taken seriously because he, unlike Abraham, doesn't stand for anything. While it is questionable whether Lot is a nice guy, so to speak, he is seemingly unmasked in one of the most poignant scenes in the Torah. As Saddam and Gomorrah are being destroyed, Lot screams to his sons-in-law that they all need to evacuate. And yet, the sons-in-law laugh at him. Indeed, it is a terrible thing to be laughed at, particularly by those who should be looking up to you in admiration.
screaming, we got to get out of here. They're, they're going to destroy our whole city. He screamed this to his sons-in-law. Um, and they, it says they looked, he seemed to them like someone who was making a joke, we might say, or joking around. They don't take him seriously. To me, this is like just so, I think this is so telling about Lot's character. He's not being taken seriously, um, especially even in a moment of ultimate danger. I mean, to 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 warn other people or to you know, and and to be laughed at in a situation, I think is like the ultimate sign of disrespect or of degradation. This kind of moment where it's so important that he be taken seriously, and then he's laughed at. I don't think I can't picture Abraham. I mean, obviously it could happen, but like there's nothing in the Torah to evidence that, no? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think that there's a, I mean, I think Sara at, at some point expresses concern that maybe people would laugh at, at, at him, right? The, when, when she gets pregnant with Yitzchak, right? That's, you know, I think part of the kind of thought process in her mind is that people would laugh. They'd say, oh, yeah. Oh, you think Avram is the father? Right. And so it could, I, I don't think that there's, I don't think that like Avram was ever above, you know, being ridiculed by other people. I mean, people are people, they're going to ridicule, but I'm sure he carried himself with more poise, you know, than, than Lod ever did. That I, don't, I wouldn't take that away either. So I don't think you're wrong. Um, Two years ago on The Shrift, I tried to see Lot and Abraham through Nietzsche's conception of master and slave morality. For Nietzsche, master morality was just normal morality in the ancient world before the onset of Christianity, or to be even more exact, Platonism. One need only read The Odyssey or watch Game of Thrones or even see Michael Jordan play basketball to know what master morality looks like. It prizes strength greatness, bravery, nobility, and even brashness. The entire essence of master morality can be summed up, I think, with the image of a king seated on his throne, looking out over his vast lands and devoted subjects, and exclaiming to all within earshot, it's good to be the king. Slave morality developed out of resentment, or more precisely, resentment toward these masters. The downtrodden in the ancient world out of envy and spite toward the powerful class, decided to invert the value system. Because they could never be masters themselves, they decided to morally judge the masters. Wealth is bad, they said. Confidence is evil, they thought. Meagerness and humility and pity are good, and most of all, moral, because that is what we are, meager, humiliated, and pitiful. I asked Jordan whether and to what extent Nietzsche's theory could be applied to Avraham and Lot. I already suspected that it would not be a perfect fit. Lot lived thousands of years before Socrates and Jesus, after all. And the question is, does Avram, to just let's, let's answer your question. Does Avram exhibit slave uh, master morality, whereas Lot exhibits slave morality? And the answer is, you know, my, my, my gut reactions, and I think it would probably be my reaction upon further reflection as well, is no, I, I don't think that that's the paradigm that, you know, is really being explored here. I think that the paradigm of Avram and Lot, and I think you're right, they're totally foils for one another. And I think that, you know, if we're going to have to like try and dissect them, you know, is Avram quote unquote based, you know, to use our, you know, kind of like contemporary parlance and is, you know, that's how I would, you know, if I was going to use a modern English word to describe master morality, I would say it's like, you know, person's based or not, right? Like, you know, do they? Based? I don't know what that means. Oh, this is, this is internet parlance for, you know, how a person kind of, you know, 
they they have an opinion and they're not apologizing about it. They oh. do thing and they like kind of live that. It's like a neologism. The truth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's worth, yeah, exactly. So I say like, even though like based can also mean like kind of, you know, in in like usually when speaking about in Torah terms, it's like when it's somebody, you know, when they translate it classically, it means, you know, like he was, you know, like debased himself, right? But That's a great word. But I, I mean, I think for Nietzsche, masters were based 100%. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so I think that, Av- I think Avram is definitely that. But I think that Lot is, you know, like I said, he's just more, you know, he's a person who's kind of trapped in his own vices. And I don't know if that's a slave morality approach to life or, you know, he's because like the slave morality almost derives from like the values generate from the the kind of life situations of being, you know, not able to express oneself. Yeah, I don't think he's where. Yeah, he moved to a place where he could express himself more fully, where he could at least smell, you know, the smell the the sin in the air, so to speak. Uh, he was, you know, and then and then he ultimately, you know, under under duress, under duress, or maybe not, he allows himself to, you know, partake of some forbidden, you know, pleasures of incest, which, you know, it's not at all appealing to me, but obviously this generation and his, you know, obviously they all have their perversions. And, you know, he, he indulges himself. And so the question's like, is that, is that slave morality? I don't know. It feels to me more like, you know, just a person who's, who's. Yeah. I don't think it's trying to make the right decision, but kind of, you know, fails in a bad way. Yeah. I don't think Lot has any resentment. That's a big, a big trend of slate. Resentment is this and self-righteousness and this kind of um yeah i don't think lot lot just seems like he's kind of lost and yeah corrupt and I, that doesn't make you slave it just makes you um yeah. not so admirable but uh he, yeah, he says it he says it himself when the angels are saving him he's like don't take me there i'm gonna i'm gonna be lost um, he's like, I am, he, oh, yeah, you're right. he becomes a, yeah, he becomes aware of his own, his own frail, you know, moral frailty in a way, I think. But he's definitely not based. We can agree on that. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's what you see with when the sons laugh at him is that someone who's based, you tend not to laugh at as much, I would say, because yeah. you know that they have conviction. Exactly. And he, yeah. and he led his life of, I, I think that they probably laughed at him because he, yeah, because of the contradictions in him. You know, if he had been more, like you said, more integral as a person with integrity, conducted himself with a deeper integrity, then, you know, that would command a greater degree of respect, you know. But what's what I think, you know, is, and it's kind of like the ultimate redeeming light about his character which is why he's so fascinating to me. I, f- I find Lot to be one of the most fascinating characters in, in the book of Genesis is that there is a redemptive spark in him in the sense that ultimately he becomes a very integral part of the Jewish people through his descendants. David Amelech is a descendant of, of Ruth, who was a Moabite, who was, you know, born mm. from this, you know, this very sin. And Lot himself has moments of greatness checkered with moments of, of, you know, debasedness. What's a moment of greatness from him? So the, the Medrash goes out of the way to tell us about it. And it's a very wow. peculiar Medrash. It describes, it's in, it's in um, the book of Deuteronomy, Devarim, and it describes him in very glowing terms about the fact that he he got to be part of the Jewish people. He got to be part of the Davidic line, no less, right? Like in some ways, the most important kind of component of the Jewish people, you know, King David, because he didn't, um, he didn't say anything about Avram when they were in Egypt together, which if you pause for a second, it's a very strange thing to give a point a person points for it's like almost like a mafia boss like you didn't rat out your your old man so you know we're gonna we're gonna hook you up with this really great you know reward it's like everyone knew that 
Avram could have been killed if he didn't do what he did. And so Lot not ratting on him is somehow makes him such a great Sadik. I, I don't understand that. But I think it does make sense if you if you look at it from the lens that we were talking about before, where Lot started out as a student of Avram, but ultimately became, you know, very influenced by his wealth and and his arrogance and his, you know, his foibles started to emerge. When did that start? You know, I would I would go out and venture, and this is just me talking, I would venture to say that that transformation started to take place while he was already in Egypt. He went from that Ito being with him, Avram, but subservient to being emo, you know, with him, but not subservient. That, that doesn't just flip on a dime. It's a transformation that takes place and that that transformation was happening in Egypt already. And the Medrash, I think is kind of pointing out, he could have just said, listen, I'm not going to tell the truth. Avram, you know, Avram lied. He gets what's coming to him. That's his problem. But he didn't do that, right? He stuck it out with Avram and he and he protected Avram. And he could, like, he might have been more disposed to do so, given the fact that his own influence, his own fame was on the rise. His star was mm. on the rise as well. And he could have said, you know, Avram played a game and this is the punishment you get for playing a game. But he was honest and forthright and he stayed, you know, he stayed true to his to his uncle and for that, I think the Chazal recognized, the sages recognized in him something very special that he did, despite what we would superficially say is not such a big deal for a person who's already becoming corrupted to not, you know, to, 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 to hold to one's moral stance when you're already in the process of becoming corrupted is even more impressive. And maybe that's perhaps um, you know, a redemptive. You know, he had a lot of temptation, a lot of temptation in Egypt, which he didn't yeah. grasp. I mean, he could have said... He could have ratted him out. Is that what you're saying, or like, yeah, and exactly. and, and gotten like, and he okay. could, have, you know, all that wealth that was going to go to Avram maybe would have just gone to Lot, you know, and he would have been, yeah, been the Lot yeah. story. But he he stuck he stuck to his guns then when he was starting maybe to feel most tempted. That's a little bit of speculation on my part. It's mostly the Medrash, but I think that that's maybe a true idea, and you know, and like and. And in that, we kind of get this because, you know, let me say it this way. When it comes to King David, you know, he's also not perfect. And right. the sages point out that that's really something that you kind of want in a king. You don't want somebody who's perfect like Avram necessarily. Sometimes you want somebody who's lived through mistakes and lives through trial. And Avram also wasn't perfect, right? Let's be clear about that. Like he also had a life before he became the big righteous Avram. You know, he was, he was an idol worshiper in... In the land of of Iraq, and he, you know, it's hard to it's hard for us to evaluate such a person, you know. But he also went through cha- challenges and striving and transformation. But the sages say that David Melech, the reason why King David was such an effective king was because he had, you know, he had this albatross around his neck. He had a, you know, he had his his failings, and you want a king yeah. who can understand you know, the human condition, which is that we're, you know, we're creatures that fail sometimes. And I think that that's the, that component is what Lot brought to the table and injected into the Jewish people. And God himself is saying, this is something worth preserving. This, this kind of challenge, this, this, this tragic aspect of Lot could, doesn't have to be a result in tragedy, but somebody who struggles, somebody who, you know, who has a hard time, and, you know, I think that that's something worth, you know, enshrining and not forgetting and making part of the Jewish people itself. So I think that there is, I think there is like a profundity in Lot, you know, I think there is. A totally. Yeah. yeah. I think there's something about Lot, like we should quote unquote dislike him or even hate him far more than we do. Yeah. Like um, he's somehow more likable than he should be. In the sense that, like, um, I think maybe because he's lost, we maybe empathize with him. There's some, there does seem to be some goodness in him. It's hard to figure out where it is or how we can find it. Maybe because we knew him before he kind of went bad. And so we, we empathize with him. Whereas there's other, obviously other characters in the Torah that we have no empathy for. We just are like, they're, they're bad. Like they suck. And so 
I agree that he must, he does have this spark. Yeah. I'm thinking about also, I'm reading now Brothers Karamazov, uh, Dostoevsky, and um, the father, uh, Fyodor, I believe he's called. He's also like very, does all kinds of bad things. You know, he's like not a good father, not a good husband, drunk, immature, like violent, but he's, there's still something about him that's likable or like you don't have this antipathy toward him so much. Mm-hmm. And I think we get that with a lot of literary characters and it's hard to pinpoint where that spark of goodness is, but if, I think if we feel it, then it's there. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting, it's an interesting example. I think you're, I think you're, I think you're right. I think you're definitely onto something. It's very, um, identifying the human, you know, kind of the, the humanness in, in people is, is something which I think we're all being encouraged to do. You know, and it's nobody's getting a passive judgment for their, you know, for their gross mistakes. But at the same time, we have to like view the whole picture and the totality of a person. And that's something which is as true today as it was, you know, when the Bible was written. So that would be my takeaway. All right. Great. Thank you, Jordan Ledvin. Hey, this was so much fun. I'm really yeah. Glad to have this she did this. It was awesome. I, yeah. We should do it more often for sure. I'm always I'm always around, although am I? That's not really true, but my good friend Steven Weinberg, of course, I always <laughs> like to make the time. So maybe we can do it again sometime. It may be an oversimplification to say that Lot is an embodiment of slave morality and Abraham a paragon of master morality. Indeed, I think Jordan better captured the relationship by describing them as foils for one another. Foil is an interesting word. As a verb, it can mean to unmask or catch, as in the police foiled the plans of the bank robbers. Even the material foil, as in aluminum foil, derives from the same root meaning. Foil is an object which reflects back light amid an array of muted tones which give no reflection. In short, foil cleverly catches the essence of the light when no other object seems up to the challenge. Just as Lot and Abraham needed to interact and occasionally even spar in order to bring light unto their characters, it is hoped that Jordan and I, in our dialogue with the Torah, were able to foil some of its more mysterious aspects, as well as our own.